Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. And let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right. Let's get right to it. Welcome to Cut to the Chase. And I am really excited to have the guys from Cop Talk. You may know this podcast. So with me, you may be recognizing these voices. Uh, Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective, and Ed Mamet, retired captain at the NYPD. Before we get into it, I have to ask you about the music that you use. It's that groovy 70s cop show music. And I, I want to buy it. I love it. It's not long enough. Yeah, Where did you find it? Uh, actually, we didn't find it. Uh, WBC Radio, actually. Oh. Yeah, we, we were surprised when we heard it. It was great. Yeah, it sounded great. But, it's perfect. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It kind of sets the tone. So you've had a wide variety of guests so far in your 15 or so episodes. Yes. You have had cops. You have had commissioners. You've had uh, people doing causes for things like 9-11 and, you know, really important issues like dealing with suicide among law enforcement. But you've also had Ed's cousin, David Mamet, one of my favorite playwrights. That's right. The great uh, David Mamet. The great David Mamet. And I just want to talk talk about him for a second because he politically he's really interesting. So he's in Hollywood. He lives in Santa Monica and he is very much in disagreement with this progressive wave in the Democratic Party. Have Were you surprised by this from your Hollywood cousin, Ed? Well, he wasn't like that when uh, when I first, you know, hooked up with him back in the 70s. But he had that interview with the uh, Village Voice. Yeah, and, I remember uh, that. And he got bashed on that by his people in Hollywood. And that's when he changed. He decided that he's going to uh, become a ultra conservative. Yeah. Which he is now. And he pulls no punches. And and it's interesting to see how perhaps his career may have suffered because of it. It's not to some degree, but he's still a, a great playwright. Oh, yeah. He's amazing. I mean, no one writes dialogue like him. Uh, the other interesting star you had was Stevie Van Zant, of course, of the musician, the actor. And Kevin, I wanted to ask you something because I could tell you got a little frustrated. He said something that I hear from a lot of people talking about police shootings. You know, we should train cops to aim for the hand or aim for the leg so that it's safer. Do you hear that a lot and does it bug you? So Stevie and I are good friends, okay? And we've done a lot of fundraising together. Yes. And I we see. have these little Stevens Policeman's Ball, annual ball every year. Yep, and you got into that in the podcast. Yes. And with that said, uh, many nights, uh, no recordings, no TV action. We're actually having these conversations where if there was a, a police-involved shooting, it was, there was some things I have to explain to Stevie. You know, it's a split-second decision to be made. Police officers, you know, get into a uh, to situation when everyone else has, you know, days and months and weeks and years sometimes to actually 
actually decide, well, maybe they could have went this way or done something different. So with that, I think I made it pretty clear to Stevie off the air, off the record, and also on the record that, you know, you're not in that position, so you really can't really judge anyone because you're not in their shoes. So That's we've a, had many conversations about That's it. exactly right. It's very easy to Monday morning quarterback when yes. you weren't there, the adrenaline's not pumping, you don't know what's happening next. Are there other things like that that are sort of common misperceptions among the public about what a cop's life is actually like? Well, I believe so. I mean, I just, it's so, you know, so many times, there's so many Monday morning quarterbacks, which there should not be. Again, if you're not walking in their shoes, you're not in that situation. Sure. I mean, it's a split second decision, as I just mentioned, and everyone else has hours and days and weeks to sit around a table and decide, well, maybe they could have done this. It's like a football game, right? Well, maybe we have a playbook, but at the end of the day, we're going to go, you know, real time, what happens, and that's the outcome. Most of the time, it's a great outcome. Usually, it's the right decision. Nine out of 10 times, it is the right decision. Right. But unfortunately, sometimes it does go a different way. I always say, though, when a police officer in uniform asks you to stop and says to you, you're under arrest, put your hands behind your back, and it's not going to be a problem. Yeah. It's when all these assailants, perpetrators decide to fight with the police is when it goes a different way. And What's most interesting about the Van Zant interview is I told him, I said, even though police are trained to fire at sentiment which is the largest part of your body, mm-hmm. most of the time they miss. Mm-hmm. So if they're missing center mass, how are they supposed to shoot you in the arm or the leg? I mean, it's right. ridiculous. Right. Uh, cops hate that when people say shoot them in the leg. You know, when I, when I came into the department, we were taught shoot to kill. Mm. We had six shot revolvers and we were told, that was, I'm talking about 1959, is fire everything you had to shoot to kill. That concept has changed to shoot to stop the threat, mm-hmm. which is a lot more restrictive. Yeah. That's what they're taught now. But even with this, you know, toning down, the percentage of misses are very high. So again, you know, it's when when you say shoot the shoot them in the leg, shoot them in the arm. That's only in the movies. You know, the cowboy shoot a gun out of your hand. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's in the movies. Take two, take three. On the street, there is no take two, take three. It's take one, and that's this it. This is it. You're stuck with it. Ed, you you started as you said in 1959. You served for 40 years. Yes. So that, if my math is correct, 1999. That's a long time with many changes in society and in policing. Oh, so yeah. when I think of 1959, I have have this image in my head of one of my favorite movies, which is called The Sweet Smell of Success with Burt Lancaster and Anthony Perkins, Tony Perkins. It's really good. And it's just the seamy side of Manhattan at nighttime and the, you know, the nightclubs and the theater and the tabloids and all of that. What was it like back then when you started? Just paint a picture for us if you can. In police work or in the city? in police work in the city? Well, we had an awful lot of authority. We were like king of the street. No one questioned our authority. Mm. Um, We had a lot of respect. Mm -hmm. Um, I was one of the shortest guys in the department. They had just just lowered the height limit. And interestingly, it was lowered because they wanted more um, Hispanic people in the job because of the increase the Hispanic population. The Puerto Ricans. That's interesting. So they were already looking to diversify. Right. And because many of them were were short, the the height limit originally was like 5'9". They kept lowering it. It was like 5'9". They dropped it down to 5'7 and a half. Mm. And the reason for that was to get more Hispanics in. Interesting. And and that's how I got in because that was my height. I was 5'7 and a half, exactly. So you just made it. Right. There was a big gang problem at the time. West Side Story was the classic. Yeah. Um, so we, we came in and we worked on foot patrol by ourselves. We had no radios. All we had was a firearm, you know, six shot revolver, handcuffs and a nightstick. And that was it. And we worked solo. 
on the street in some of the toughest neighborhoods. Where did you work? Where was your first I went post? to Bedford-Stuyvesant, the mm. 79th Precinct, which mm. was a pretty rough place. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to handle ourselves, mainly because we had the respect of the community. And I can remember my first Sunday on patrol. I was in my brand new uniform. It was a Sunday morning. And I'm out on Fulton Street. I was Fulton. I forgot the cross street. And I see this woman getting smacked around by two guys. Wow. So I go to intercede. The next thing, the three of them attack me. And Her as me well? Down. Yeah. <laughs> they locked <laughs> me down. And my brand new uniform was ripped up. Wow. But somebody, you know, um, called uh, called in, one of the residents called in. The next thing, all the police cars came. It was a, a code called 1013, which mm -hmm. means assist patrolman. And I uh, got all the help I needed. But the fact was, the even in the, even the bad neighborhoods, people still respected the police, most of them. Yeah. And they would call if you needed help. And as I say, we worked solo. We, you know, we we handled ourselves. And then you went through the '60s and the '70s, and then the you know the crack epidemic in the '80s. That's a lot. Um, you you were a detective for a lot of the time, and then rose up to captain. What? How do you feel about that evolution and going through it? I mean, just living history that you saw in those forty years. Well, I've seen an awful lot. You know, I've seen the um, the narcotics problem. I was in narcotics for seven years. I did undercover work. At that time, the drug problem was heroin. Then it eventually changed to crack. I remember the Vietnam War demonstrations. Mm -hmm. uh, I, there were several riots. Um, there were race riots back in uh, like the 60s. So I've seen an awful lot in, that, in my time. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, when did you start? I came on a little after it. I started in 1985. 1985. Okay, yes. so things were pretty rough back then. Yes, it was different. Uh, it, you know, Times Square wasn't like it is. You you were know, in, it wasn't Disney World. And you were it, in you Manhattan. You I were, was in Manhattan. I did mo uh, all my career in Manhattan, yeah. yes. Actually, I started out at NSU 5, Neighborhood Stabilization Unit, it was called, after mm -hmm. the academy, where we worked uh, five different precincts up in Harlem, 5th Division. Then after that, I was assigned to Midtown North Precinct, and I was there for eight years, and then I went to Narcotics was promoted detective, and I came back to the detective squad at Midtown North, and uh, where I also became a union representative. Uh, I was elected delegate for 10 years. Uh, so you were, you were a detective and a union delegate yes, at the same time? Yes. Okay. I was promoted detective in 1995, mm -hmm. uh, 10 years after I came on the job, and then I went to the Midtown North detective squad where I was promoted. Uh, I was there 16 years, and I was promoted second grade, and then first grade. I retired as a first grade detective. And I was also a union rep for 10 years, representing the Midtown North detectives. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I, how politically influential are the unions, the police unions here in New York City? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more aware of what's, what goes on in Nassau County. When I came on, the uh, police unions were very strong, mm. very strong. Uh, and everyone got along. Everyone sat down at the table they and did. got along. Did the, um, did the individual unions, the sergeants and the patrolmans and the detectives, they all got along? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was a different uh, time. Yeah. Know, everyone got along. You know, it's not like today. Um, today, uh, the unions are still pretty powerful here in New York, uh, but I feel not as uh, strong as they were. Hmm. Back in 1985, mm -hmm. the union still endorsed candidates. Yes, yeah, so I was actually on the political action committee as oh, well. Oh, that must have so, been interesting. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Who were some uh, of the most colorful uh, politicians that you met that you screened with? That screened with you, I should say. Oh, everyone running for mayor. We'd yeah. sit down with the uh, unions, and um, so everyone running for mayor, governor, you know, local uh, city council people. Yeah. Pretty much everyone from Giuliani to uh, Mark Green. You know, mm -hmm. everyone from mm -hmm. David Dinkins, yeah. David Dinkins, everyone, everyone who ran for mayor, even to this day, they will, you know, try to sit with the political action committee to get an endorsement. You know, right. everyone wants and, and should want the police unions to endorse them. You know, there's an interesting evolution of the unions. When I came, they were not unions. They were fraternal organizations. Huh. 
It wasn't until Mayor Lindsay. So they didn't have the collective bargaining. No, they didn't aspect? have anything. If, you, if there were no raises, if you, you know, you got to raise them. How? The mayor would look out the window one day. You know, I think I'll give the cops two hundred thousand a year, something <laughs> like that. It was when Lindsay came in, and and what's interesting, the cops we hated Lindsay because Lindsay was out there, you know, uh, in the streets when the riots took place. He was. We always felt he was on the side of the rioters and that he was anti-cop. Yet the dichotomy was he gave us everything. He gave us union recognition. He gave us. Charity. He gave us a lot. Wow. And health plan. So he, in, in terms of- Was there of, no health plan before? It was very, all he had was um, was hip. Yeah. You know, but we had the option to get it to GHI. So Lindsay, while he was despised by the cops, and he couldn't understand why we despised him so much when he gave us everything. Yeah. Because we despised him politically, but he did the right thing. And so I think it was in the early 60s where he recognized the fraternal organizations like the PBA, the sergeants, the captains as collective bargaining agents. And that's when we be, took on the role of unions. Mm, so I, I saw this transition. Huh, but interesting. There were not unions at the time. You had five groups. You had the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, the Lieutenant's Benevolent Association, and the Captain's Endowment Association. But they were all fraternal type yeah, groups. Yeah, and the detectives. detectives. And the detectives, I right. forgot. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So, Ed, you, uh, we were talking before we turned on the mic. The job was seen as very Irish. A lot of guys, oh, yeah. <laughs> O'Leary, Kelly, etc. Uh, you were Jewish yes. and still are Jewish yes. <laughs> coming on the force. <laughs> Were there many of you? At the time, there was about 2,500. Huh. And, and I'll tell you another interesting Out of about how many then? Uh, 18,000. We yeah. were about 6% of the job. Okay. And most of them were very highly educated because prior to World War II, the, the, I think 35,000 people took the exam for the police department because of the Depression. And many of them were, were Jewish kids that had college education. And, and the um, department gave the preference to those that had college. So there was a large group of Jewish kids that went into the department in, in 1940. 1941 at that time. So when I got into the job, there was still a lot around. Hmm. And the percentage was about 6%. And in fact, Harry Golden, there was an author named Harry Golden. He wrote a book called For a Two Cents Plane. Hmm. <laughs> and, and in that book, he said that when he visited New York, he was shocked to find out how many Jewish police there were you yeah. know, in New York. Is there is there an association for Jewish yes, police? Yes, it's called yeah. the Shamrim Society. Shamrim in Hebrew means the guardians. Ah, oh, that's also what it's, what it's called in Nassau County. So you both did worked in narcotics for a significant part of your careers. Is it strange now to walk down the street in New York City and smell all the marijuana? Well, for me it is because I made many arrests for marijuana when I was a young detective. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way exactly. Besides, uh, everywhere you turn, you smell the marijuana. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. In fact, That's I think John Katsimatidis was talking about it the other day. I'm sure he was, yeah. yeah. And and the problem that a lot of people don't understand about the cannabis legalization is that these shops that you see everywhere, they're illegal. There may be three or four legal ones here in the city. But there are six times as many illegal cannabis shops as there are Starbucks in the wow. five boroughs. 
but there doesn't seem to be any enforcement of it. Yeah, one of the problems I heard was that the the contents of what they're selling could be damaging. Yes, There's because really it's not no regulated. Control over over it. You don't know what's in it. It's right. not taxed. So you guys, you know, this is your sort of your next chapter doing this podcast. What made you, you could just be chilling, hanging out, having fun, doing whatever you want, playing golf or whatever. <laughs> uh, why did you guys decide to start a podcast? Before COVID hit, uh, I had an idea. I was talking to some other friends about possibly a podcast or even actually talk radio show in regards to cop talk, you know, pro law enforcement for law enforcement community, not only throughout the New York City, but also the country as well as, you know, a global. And why, why a need for that, do you think? Because I felt there wasn't enough pro-law enforcement uh, talk out there. Mm -hmm. It seems to always be negative. I mean, mm -hmm. um, that's why we have some celebrities on our podcast, Cop Talk, that are pro-cop, pro-law enforcement. And you always hear about everyone else that's not pro-law enforcement in the celebrity world. But yeah. it's nice to hear sometimes about the celebrities who are pro-law enforcement. That's you know? right. And sometimes they're silent about it because they want to get a job out in L.A., but most of the time, hopefully, they they'll speak out about it. But isn't that sad that people are afraid of getting blacklisted? I mean, this is something that Democrats hated in the 50s with McCarthy and the, you know, the anti-American hearings and being and, and directors and stars and writers, screenwriters being blacklisted from working in Hollywood. But some could argue it's a little softer now, but it's the same sort of thing where you're sort of shamed and blamed if you speak out. Uh, it was interesting, you know, Cheryl Hines, the actress from Curb Your Enthusiasm, she's married to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And she's actually, he said that she's lost some jobs in Hollywood because now that he's announced against Biden to run in the Democratic primary, she's getting blacklisted. It just doesn't seem right to well, me. Well, that's similar to what happened to my cousin David. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> so anyway, so we had anyway. the idea. I'm sorry. So yeah, we had no, the I idea. And then um, Ed and I just happened to be chatting about it after COVID. So you guys have been friends? Uh, yeah, we didn't know each other on the job, on uh -huh. the police department. But I met Ed because we're both very good friends with John Katzmatidis. Oh. In a different way. And um, so we became, uh, we got to know each other actually after the job through John Katzmatidis. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. And so we had a conversation and Ed had his idea as well of doing a show. And he told me his idea. I told him my idea. And here we are today on Cop Talk. On right. And, and I spoke to John Katz. If it, let me say this. If it wasn't for John Katz and Matides, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. It, you know, I, I asked him about it once, he, you know, when he got into the radio business and I mentioned it to him and he gave us the go ahead. So he really deserves the credit for what we're doing now. Do you have a favorite podcast that you've done so far? Well, I would say my cousin. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. He's funny. He doesn't hold anything I back. I, I would say uh, Joe Murray, who is, uh, is an attorney yeah, now. And good, actually, Joe. he ran for Queens DA as well, Joe Murray. And oh, yeah. We were cops together back in Midtown North. And uh, I happen to like that one. I think that's a pretty interesting. He's an interesting character. And it's a pretty interesting story, what he told on Cop Talk, you know. And we have some others planned, too. You know, some good some good shows planned. Right, Ed? Yes, the the other one we had that was very good was the police commissioner from Yonkers. Mm. He, he did a good job. Mm -hmm. Actually, Jeannie Kelly was very good. She, and then we had you. That's right. <laughs> so week. we're recording this on April 28th, which is a Friday. So this comes out on Monday. And then it's kind of, did you ever, I used to love the show Homicide Life on the Streets on NBC. It's sort of like when Homicide Life on the Streets went on uh, Law and Order. So you have these two shows coming together. That's what we're doing with our yes, podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we're very happy to have you on. I appreciate that. Oh, you're coming on. No, you're, you know, very, so very can... popular and very busy. So thank you for coming oh, on of course our, our, was... our uh, Cop Talk show. It's yeah. absolutely my pleasure. And yours is coming out the Tuesday, the day after mine's coming out. So people, people are just going to be so excited to have a double dose of us together. <laughs> yes. Can't wait. Can't wait. It's going to be fun. Although you're a New York, New York Islander fan. So, I am. And he's a Rangers fan. Yes, but that's so. all. See, we can get along. Of course we can. We can, can, see, we're, we're we can be Civil. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
You know, I wanted to comment before we were talking about narcotics. Yeah. You know, the big thing with the marijuana is people don't realize that it really is a gateway drug. Because I spent seven years in narcotics, five of which I did undercover work. And I used to make buys of all kinds of drugs, you know, marijuana, cocaine, um, heroin, LSD at the time. Yeah, was, that's uh, still around, you know. Right. Mushrooms are And I saw combat. this progression from marijuana use to the harder drugs. Because what happened, people would use marijuana and then they wouldn't get the high anymore and they'd go to the next step. Of course, the marijuana people downplay that. They say, oh, that's nonsense. It's not a gateway drug. Right. They say there's two sides, that it's not addictive, that, you know, it's good for illnesses or insomnia, that sort of thing. Well, medical marijuana, I understand. Yeah. You know, that's highly controlled uh, and people do need it. But the street street sales of marijuana, first of all, the marijuana today is very powerful. Mm. And um, so it definitely is a gateway drug. And I would challenge anybody to dispute that. So you said you did undercover? Yes, for five years. So did you have to change how you looked? Well, I had sometimes I had a beard, sometimes I didn't have a beard. And I moved <laughs> around the city. Wow. Was it scary? <laughs> I had some scary episodes. Can but, you tell us one? Uh, the one that was most scary was... I used to have a 25 caliber semi-automatic tiny little pistol, mm. and I wore it in my crotch. <laughs> That's <laughs> right? a good place for it. I had a crotch holster, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is a funny story. So, so I go into this apartment, and there's this guy, and um, I'm in there, and I'm, I'm making a buy, and he says- Where to is me, the apartment? Somewhere in East Village, I think it was, okay. or Harlem. I'm trying to remember. And very often what happened is when you would make a buy, they would say they wanted a a, t- a taste of what you just bought. Yeah. So guy says to me, yeah, you know, I want a taste of that. I said, well, listen, my girlfriend's waiting outside. So he says, yeah, but uh, you're going to have it. And he locks the door. So now, That's so scary. So now I'm, I'm out. I'm in the, the apartment. So um, I said, uh-oh, I got a problem. So I, I zip my fly down. I'm ready to go with my car. So he says, what are you doing? I said, I have to go to the bathroom. So when I was ready, because the only way to get to my gun was to go yeah. through the fly, because yeah. it was sort of, it was in my crotch. So he says, all right, I'll go there. Then he, I come out and he says, all right, you give me a taste. I says, listen, my girl's waiting outside. And besides, I have hepatitis. You don't, you don't want to share a needle with me. Yeah. So then he says to me, oh, okay, get out. You know, see, I used to have those kind of experiences. Wow. That must, I've always thought that would be so scary because you have to be an actor. Oh yeah. I learned to be an actor. Yeah. Do you, like, how would you get in, quote unquote, get into character? It would depend on the situation. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone was unique. But yeah, you had to think fast. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you ever do undercover work? I was in narcotics, but I did not do any undercover work. No, I was an investigator. So what's one of your experiences that you thought, oh my God, I might not get home tonight? In narcotics? Or in in, Uh, in your whole career? Um there's been a few different situations. I mean, um, responding to a uh, shots fired, you know, mm-hmm. now you're going into a building and you're not sure who's doing the shooting, you know, what you're up against, I have no idea. And um, of course, the door would go through your head of, you know, am I going home tonight? Yeah. But uh, basically, you just went full steam ahead and, and did the job. And then afterwards, you'd think about it. You know, you'd be in a bar after your tour, having a beer and talking to the guys and girls and saying, holy mackerel, yeah. what just happened tonight, you know? Thank God. But you don't think about it really too much. At that moment. Because you you have that tunnel vision. You're just in, you're so deeply in that moment. Yes. Do you find when you were on the job and and now that you're retired that you can have conversations with fellow cops that you just can't have with people who've never been in law enforcement? Is there 
like an understanding? Well, it's a tough time today because there's so much anti-cop sentiment. And you know, one of the things I want to point out, after 9-11, we were all heroes. Yeah. And they loved us. I mean, mm -hmm. there wasn't... And, and I said to somebody, I said, you know, this is going to wear off. I said, this is temporary. They're loving us now. You knew that. Oh, I knew it from experience. Because I, I was already retired. I had just retired, but I volunteered. So I was down at the World Trade Center for about a month and a half as a, as a volunteer. And... Um, I told people, I said, this is not going to last. I said, because people will return to the anti-cop mentality. Uh, firemen don't have that problem. Firemen are always the heroes. They're always the hero. Right? Yeah. Because they don't they don't make arrests. They don't write summonses. They're saving the kitten from the tree. Everybody yeah. loves them. So that's yeah. the thing. So I knew that was going to change. Uh, but that's that's the nature of the job. And you have to accept that. If you go into police work, you have to accept the fact that there's always going to be resentment because you're a, you're a law enforcement. That's right. You, you know, and people don't, a lot of people don't like that. And you have to have a tough skin and you have to know that it's not personal about you, Ed, or you, Kevin. Now, one episode that you did touched on the problem, and it really is a bit of an epidemic, uh, having to do with police suicides. What can be done to help people who need it on the job? Well, they have the Papa program, correct? Yes. So, which helps police officers uh, who want to, you know, chat, talk to someone. Is there ever a shame of talking to someone because it's admitting a weakness? Oh yeah, it's a big thing in the yeah. police department. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, how many people do we all know who may have committed suicide that you had no idea? I mean, every life was good. We thought life was good for them. We wow. don't know what's inside their head. So, yeah, it, you know, it's 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 tough. We don't know what's going through your head, but if you're able to, you know, talk to someone, uh, but. Again, people feel funny about talking about it, even today, which yeah. is which is tough. It's hard. It's a it's a obstacle we have to get over. So everyone could just talk about it, and maybe that won't happen. Yeah, I think the know. big problem, my experience, is that the first thing the department will do if you have an emotional problem is it's going to take away your gun. Mm. And to many cops, that's a symbol of my manhood. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the women feel about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Power, that, you, know, you know. But that's a symbol of of the manhood. So when you take away the pistol. It's like you took away my life. And the department will, I'm telling you, as soon as they hear that, they get paranoid. Guns go. Guns go. And you, you take it off the street and you go into a limited capacity. So most cops are very concerned about, you know, revealing that they're having emotional problems mm -hmm. for that reason. And even though the department claims everything is confidential, there's no confidentiality in the police department. There's always talk. Oh, I have found, yes. I'm sure I, that was in Nassau County, the, too. Just the, they were like girls. Just I mean, no no dis, disrespect <laughs> to girls, but so much gossip. And all of these crazy rumors would go around that weren't even true, but... They yeah, accepted as true. So it's very, it's extremely hard to keep it confidential. Yeah, but that that's a big problem. Well, it's good that you guys bring up these kinds of issues on your podcast, and I would I would encourage everyone, cop or not, to listen to Cop Talk. It's really good. It's engaging. It's funny. You know, you can be very serious, but you also keep it light and give people a perspective of what it's like. So I can't believe it, but our time is up. The half hour has flown by. But uh, if you like this podcast, tune in tomorrow to Cop Talk, where we talk about the politicization of policing uh, within the department and from Albany and about a bunch of other stuff that we didn't get time to cover today. So uh, I just want to thank Ed Mamet and Kevin Schroeder. Thank you so much for making time for me today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having great. us. Great. Good it's job. It's an honor to be with you. And like and subscribe to both of these podcasts. Give us five stars and share them all with your friends. 